Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. A little while back, we had a post on the Melbourne History Workshop website in response to the death of Sisto Malaspina of Pellegrini's Cafe in Bourke Street. There'd been an enormous outpouring of grief and many, many shared memories. None better, I think, than a tribute from Melbourne writer Arnold Zabel, who wrote that there's lots more to be said, many stories to tell, and they will be told. They must be told. I'd spoken to Sisto 20 years ago or so during research for my book, Espresso Melbourne Coffee Stories, and we were trying to work out where the cafe's original four-group coffee machine might have ended up. The Pellegrini brothers had renovated an old tailor's shop in Bourke Street, and the building application that they sent to the Melbourne City Council in October 1954 showed the modernised shopfront. Inside, the cafe featured a pyrock vermiculite ceiling, chequered floor tiles, mirror walls, column support bar stools, and dotted on the plan was a space on the curved bar for this mysterious espresso machine. And Pellegrini's was an immediate hit, not only with Italians, but also with taxi drivers and theatre goers, medical professionals from Collins Street and patrons of the nearby Hill of Content bookshop. When Taylor Harry Davis retired and freed up space in the rear of the building, the Pellegrini's knocked down some walls, extended the front bar and used the upstairs room as a change room. An Italian pastry cook prepared all kinds of Italian, French and Hungarian cakes, pizza made an early entry onto the menu, and an imported gelati machine was probably one of Melbourne's first. In 1958, at the opening of the extension to the rear, thousands of people were treated to a seven-foot-high cake in the shape of a log. A ribbon cut by the Lord Mayor's son released some finches from a concealed cage at the top of the cake. So it was wonderful to receive a letter, yet it was actually a letter and not an email, from Frida Morgan in Sydney, who was inspired to write to us about her memories of Pellegrini's. I'm 90 years old, she writes, and can remember the Melbourne of 1954 very well. Young married couple, short on cash, so I had to take jobs which involved me daytime, husband evening hours. We met there three days a week during what I can only call the changeover period. In Melbourne, about 5.30pm, the only option was Gibby's. From memory, the one we went to was in an arcade opposite the Athenaeum. It ran from Collins Street through to Swanston Street. Gibby's, owned by the Gibson family, offered toasted cheese sandwiches. But we hit Pellegrini's when it first opened, 1954. Two brothers, one very glamorous and handsome, like an Italian movie star. The other, short, nippy black moustache, stappy dressed. It was the small existing entrance, stools, counter and a small kitchen at the end. Open to view where an Italian nonna and one of the wives cook spaghetti. What a change from Gibby's. We moved to Sydney some years ago, so never went to Pellegrini's under the new owner. Frida ends her letter noting that talk of Pellegrini's brought back a more intimate Melbourne, 
No glossy high-rises except for Nuru House and ICI, various restaurants run by Merker and George, Thomas's record shop with John Carger, a bookshop run by gentle ladies and dress material shop spread over many floors. So thanks, Frida, so much for sending these memories to us, which I think captures some of the mood of those immediate post-war decades. And it did remind me of one story about Hope Gibson, the man who opened Gibby's chain of coffee shops, who also claimed to have made the first toasted sandwiches in Australia. His technique, so the story goes, which produced crisp brown toast without curled edges, was initially perfected with his wife's iron, and he became known around town as the man who irons his sandwiches. Speaking of food, before we hear from Peter Yule speaking with Nicole Davis about his new book on the Buxtons, and hear about a new exhibition on the intriguing Isaac Selby, here's Ross Caravas opening the door into the sixpenny restaurants of Melbourne's yesteryear. In 1874, a journalist writing under the byline The Man About Town pens one of the earliest articles I've found in an Australian newspaper about the Sixpenny Restaurant. My Sixpenny Restaurant, appearing in Melbourne's Herald in August of that year, describes the dining experience at his favourite Sixpenny Restaurant, which he discovers after having explored every possible cheap eating house in Melbourne. The restaurant is located in a street which is never visited by great men. It is owned by a Frenchman who runs a clean, neat and tidy place, mostly frequented by foreigners. The meal enjoyed by the author for a humble sixpence is a very good soup, a well-cooked piece of meat and a pastry for dessert. This article heralds the emergence of sixpenny restaurants as a new form of eating out in Melbourne in the second half of the 19th century. For a sixpence, they offer three courses and provide their patrons with a quick and easy meal and a choice of dishes. Newspaper articles and advertising, travel logs and personal journals report on their existence from the 1870s through to the beginning of the First World War. As this segment reveals, their offerings may have been, in the words of food historian Charmaine O'Brien, less refined than other dining options of their period but they still catered to a critical segment of the food-buying public. Their everydayness belies their function as an important place where patrons were introduced to new tastes, where diners were exposed to new ingredients and indeed new ideas about cuisine, and where the city itself underwent change as a consumer space. So where did Melburnians find a six-penny restaurant back in the day? Another 19th-century journalist John Stanley James, aka The Vagabond, reported that sixpenny restaurants operated on both the main thoroughfares and in the back streets of Melbourne. However, he doesn't give us any further clues as to which streets they may have been on. An August 1880 article reported that... All visitors to Melbourne must be struck by the large number of eating houses with all meals sixpence, prominently announced in their windows, which are to be found in... Burke, Swanson and Elizabeth Streets, and also in the neighbourhood of Spencer Street Station. 
The article reported that the number of six-penny restaurants was growing and estimated that there were at least 30 across these locations. The simplest way of identifying six-penny restaurants and their locations is by working with job vacancy ads in newspapers. For example, on the 3rd of November 1890, La Mascot Restaurant at 27 to 29 Burke Street advertised in the Situations Vacant section of the age for Cook, second, used to six-penny restaurant, 27 and 29 Burke Street East. So what could you eat in one of these establishments? Dining at a six-penny restaurant was defined by a set menu of three courses at a fixed price of sixpence. This offer was commonly available across the four decades from the 1870s to the 1910s. While the six-penny restaurant menus followed a simple structure, they offered patrons a significant element of choice. In 1876, the Vagabond describes a breakfast menu with a choice of 10 hot dishes and multiple cups of tea or coffee. The dinner menu offered six soups, 12 kinds of meats and six puddings or pies, with tea, coffee and bread and butter. The supper menu offered stewed rabbit, haricot mutton, curries and some 15 other dishes with salad, beetroot and tomatoes. Two decades on, in 1895, the same author reported on the food offer at a contemporary six-penny restaurant. For dinner here, you get soup, meat, fish, vegetables, pudding or tart for sixpence. That's tuppence a course. For breakfast and tea, you have all sorts of grills and fries and hashes and stews with two or three cups of tea and coffee and bread and butter on a liberal scale for sixpence. This is a good example of what is done in all such places. There is also ample evidence of choice within courses. An 1880 news commentary noted that soup, meat, vegetables and puddings, or chops, steaks, bread and butter and tea for sixpence, are common offerings at sixpenny restaurants. In 1907, an unidentified sixpenny restaurant offered the choice of two soups, ten entrees or joints, a range of different sweets, as well as an unlimited supply of bread and tea. While the number of offers available in each course varies, what is consistent between all of these menus is that each course offers multiple choices which patrons can choose from. At the same time, newspaper reports document specific dishes that can be ordered at sixpenny restaurants. In 1876, the Vagabond mentions Epicurean delights such as beefsteak pudding and stuffed ox hearts for dinner, and stewed rabbit, haricot mutton and curries for supper. Breakfast offerings include chops, steaks, sausages, fried fish, dry hash bread and butter. Mention is also made of stewed lamb, curried mutton, Irish stew, as well as specials such as rabbit pie and fish. A 1907 article mentions four dishes on the menu mutton broth and pea soup, as well as lamb and mint sauce or beef and Yorkshire puddings. Finally, in February 1914, a six-penny restaurant is offering pea soup and beef tea, baked fish, stewed rabbit and bacon, rabbit and ham pie, Irish stew, haricot mutton, brain sausages, mutton and ham pie, stewed lamb and celery, curried eggs and rice, veal, pork and beef. Who was the client of the six-penny restaurant if it wasn't the great and the good? The customer profile of six-penny restaurants certainly changed over time. In the 1870s, newspaper articles identify men of means who have fallen on hard times as one group of customers. Six-penny restaurants are also patronised by foreigners and recent migrants. In 1876, 
the vagabond provides a vivid description of the customers at his favourite sixpenny restaurant, couched in the racial stereotypes of the times. A Negro gentleman from Jamaica, a Frenchman, vrai gentilhomme from Mauritius, several sons of the sod, mostly banded together under holy church in the hatred of the Sassanac, a stray Chinaman who is the only epicure, a hawker, Hibernian who orates on every subject, and a young man of considerable self-assurance who was an officer in the Southern Army during the American War. But from the 1880s, Sixpenny restaurants catered to a very different customer base as their numbers increased. They become a working man's quarter where working men's appetites have to be satisfied for a sixpence. An 1882 report describes Sixpenny restaurants as a place where the artisan classes go to enjoy a three-course dinner for sixpence. This continued through the first decade and a half of the 20th century, with the Bendigo Independent reporting that in Melbourne, the more affluent tradesmen go to Sixpenny restaurants to enjoy a hot square meal while other workers put down their tools and eat in at lunchtime. Over time, working women also begin to patronise Sixpenny restaurants on a regular basis, as do women who have travelled to the city from the country. How significantly the customer base for Sixpenny restaurants has changed is evident in the evocative description by the Nomad in 1908. A blind street musician sits next to a shopman with a celluloid collar and shiny coat. A muddied labourer jostles the elbow of an out-of-work actor. A greasy-handed mechanic passes the bread to a broken-down book canvasser. A bronzed miner exchanges ideas with a pallid-faced city Ishmaelite. A dusty pavement artist talks of pictures to a journalistic hack. Upstairs, in the ladies' room, are frugal-minded countrywomen on shopping bent, servant girls out of situation, neatly dressed tailoresses, giggling factory girls, and a newly married Arcadian couple honeymooning in the city. What is striking is the range of occupations and social groups identified. It's certainly a broader and more diverse group of customers than those identified in the 1870s. So what was the experience like of eating out at a sixpenny restaurant? While sixpenny restaurants offered meals in the morning and in the evening, they were at their busiest in the middle of the day at what was known as dinner time. In 1876, the Vagabond reported that at one o'clock you will see a tremendous rush, every seat at the little tables being occupied, and that in the most go-ahead city of the Southern Hemisphere, all business is practically suspended from one till two o'clock p.m. At lunchtime, six-penny restaurants served anywhere between 150 and 700 meals. There was a frantic and relentless energy in the cooking of food during peak service at lunchtime, when plates needed to be served as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Two newspaper reports, three decades apart, capture the changed ambiance of a six-penny restaurant at lunchtime. Here is the vagabond describing lunch at a six-penny restaurant in 1876. At one o'clock, you'll see a tremendous rush, every seat at the little tables being occupied. If one has Catholic ideas on the subject, or dirty hands, it is amusing to sit down with the crowd and watch the different modes of eating. The waiters are for some 20 minutes under a pressure of orders, enough to tire out the intellect of most men. 
The habitués seem to strive to get done first, and he who sits nearest the door may order his corned beef and cabbage a dozen times, on each occasion it being captured en route as my order. 32 years later, the nomad invokes the hectic atmosphere of dinner time in a Melbourne sixpenny restaurant in 1908. It is dinner time in a sixpenny restaurant. Open the door, you are immediately enveloped in a hot, steamy atmosphere. There is a busy clatter of plates, knives and forks. Hot-faced waitresses fly hither and thither, deftly balancing tiers of laden plates. A hum of disjointed conversation litters through the racket of crockery and steel. In the kitchen, perspiring cooks ladle out soup, slash steaming joints and dissect solid-looking puddings. The kitchen man juggles with plates of vegetables, passing them through the chute with a flourish born of long practice. You seat yourself and, if you're wise, keep your hat on or place it on your knee. Hats have been exchanged, quite accidentally of course, in a crowded dining room. I think we could say that sixpenny restaurants had a significant impact on the culinary culture of Melbourne and were indicators of significant social and cultural changes. Their existence shows us that they generated new audiences for the restaurant sector by attracting women, blue-collar workers and workers in newly emerging administrative and service roles, such as clerks and sales assistants. Looking at new forms of food service, menu and service offerings in six-penny restaurants reveals a new model which emphasises choice, value, speed and efficiency as important elements of the patron experience. Six-penny restaurants broaden the definition of a restaurant beyond its traditional focus on the wealthy and the aristocratic and on haute cuisine and fine dining. Welcome to our second episode of Melbourne by the Book, a segment where we discuss books that explore the history of the city. Published in 2018, Peter Yule's The Buxtons, 150 Years of Developing Melbourne, looks at the Buxton family, who have been integral to the transformation of the built environment of the city for five generations. Dr Peter Yule is a professional historian with a PhD from the University of Melbourne and a fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. He has written a number of books on Australian business, economic and urban history. And these include biographies of Sir Ian Potter and W.L. Bailey, the founder of the Bailey family fortune, as well as histories of Australian National Airways, the Collins Class Submarine Project, the Royal Children's Hospital and Carlton, the suburb, not the football club. Currently, Peter is working on two projects, histories of the Victorian Bar and of Australia's Vietnam veterans. I'm Nicole Davis, and today I'm talking to Peter in the studio about his book, The Growth of Melbourne, The Contribution of the Buxtons to Its Development, and the Writing of an Urban History Spanning 150 Years. Welcome, Peter. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks very much for asking me. You're welcome. It's great to have you here. The flyer of the book tells us a little bit about your publication, and it says that Peter Yule brings the Buxton story to life tracing how this one family left a distinctive mark on Melbourne's landscape. I thought you might be able to give us a brief overview of the book and about the Buxtons and what you see as distinctive about their contribution. 
Yes, look, the Buxton family are, in Melbourne terms, rather exceptional. They've been in business as real estate agents and property developers in Melbourne since 1859, and they're now into the sixth generation in, in the same line of business. There are very, very few Melbourne businesses that are that old. Um, you know, you can think of a few, the National Australia Bank, some of the old law firms perhaps go back that far, um, Alcox Billiards, uh, Blaschke Regalia, <laughs> two or three others, but there are hardly any and for, and certainly none in as um, cyclical a business as real estate and property development. So it's fascinating to see how they've survived for all that time. And obviously through all that period, it illustrates very well you know, the different epochs in, in Melbourne's history from the um, boom of the gold rush period and then rising up to the massive boom of the 1880s, then the crash of the 1890s, the First World War, Depression, Second World War, the post-war boom, then the decline of Melbourne in the 1970s and 80s um, and leading up to the regeneration in recent years. And through all of that, the Buxton family have been heavily involved. And so it, it's it's a very good, neat little way of illustrating the, the development of Melbourne since 1859. So a really a lot of longevity and, and endurance, basically, with that family. Yes, but also flexibility in that each generation has re-engineered the business to suit changing circumstances. Um, you know, some have sort of contracted back to their original base in South Melbourne. Some have expanded out. Some have gone to the outer suburbs. And they always seem to have done their moves at pretty much the right time. Michael Buxton, who's sort of the patriarch of the family, uh, who's one of the fifth generation and probably the most successful of any of them. He's always been interested in the family history and it was he that approached me about writing the history. I think I was actually about the third or fourth historian he approached and some of those even got started, but I was the, the first one to actually finish. So different branches of the family have gone into different aspects of the business at different times, is that right? Yes, yes, very much so. And Michael split off from the real estate agents, which is the one that most people are still familiar with, the Buxton's real estate agents all through the eastern suburbs in particular, um, a different branch of the family from Michael's branch, which are now mainly developers. So, yes, you know, obviously over six generations, the family can spread far and wide. Yeah. I mean, it's a sign, you know, even in my local neighbourhood, you know, when they were building a development recently, the big Buxton sign. So it's kind of an, a bit of an iconic sign over Melbourne and you know the real estate agent well and you know the development company well. But they also have a variety of, I guess they're not subsidiary companies, but companies that have formed with other people and arisen out of different connections as yeah. well, haven't they? Yes, probably the most famous of those is Beckton, which is still going as a listed company, although it's fallen on tough times since um, Michael Buxton left. But that was formed with Max Beck, hence Beckton. Yep. Um, and in the, from 1975 or thereabouts where it started until the mid-1990s, that was you know, probably Melbourne's most successful development company and they did some amazing things in St Kilda Road and then with 333 Collins Street, which was their crowning achievement. Yes. And were they responsible for a lot of the Docklands development or was that a different...? No, that, that was MAB, which is Michael Buxton with his brother Andrew. Uh, Michael and Max split up in the early 1990s and Michael then set up another development company with his brother Andrew and uh, they're the ones that developed Docklands. They they um, originally applied to develop all of Docklands, but uh, the government wanted to keep the various developers competitive between themselves, so they split up, split it up between various ones, and they actually gave 
Michael and Andrew, one of the least attractive sites in that it was a shaded area of the of the, the waterfront. But they done a pretty good job with it. Yeah. I, I actually knew very little about Docklands until it had, you know, I'd never done more than go to the football at Docklands Stadium until then. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I came to appreciate what they were trying to do and some of it works quite quite nicely. Yeah, there's some beautiful um, buildings there and some that work really well with the mm. environment there, um, which Docklands probably has a little bit of a bad reputation yeah. um, for its, you know, inclusivity and it's warmth. <laughs> yeah, oh, they've got this fundamental problem of just this cold wind blowing up yeah. the river. <laughs> when the cold wind isn't blowing, it is very pleasant. Yeah. But, uh, it blows a lot of the time. I was going to ask another question about this kind of, uh, kind of related to the longevity and the span of the book. So it spans 150 years of Melbourne history in 265 plus pages and uh, probably a lot of us know how rich and deep the urban history of Melbourne is. How did you grapple with this broad kind of history and the depth of this history? Did it, did looking at it through the history of one family kind of provide a focus? Yeah, it looked very much so. It would have been very difficult to do it just as a history of Melbourne over 150 years. Looking at it through one family really did help in that way because particularly because the focus, is, focus of the family's work changed very much um, over time and, and with, almost with each generation. First of all, they set up in South Melbourne when it was just starting out as a suburb. And South Melbourne was always different from, we, we sort of think of it as a working class suburb in the same way as Fitzroy, Richmond and Collingwood were, but it, it was always different in the sense that whereas those suburbs had, um, because they didn't keep the huddle grid going, those suburbs always had narrow little streets and got very slummy. South Melbourne always had big wide streets and was was nicely set out with parks and gardens, even though some of it become very working class. It was because of the proximity of factories and wharves along the river that attracted working class lives there back in the days when you had to walk to, to work before public transport was a big thing. And so it was always very different from the suburbs north of the river that became Melbourne's slum suburbs. And South Melbourne and then Albert Park and Middle Park were where the Buxtons really started and did much local development. I mean, the most notable, of course, is Rochester Terrace, um, which is still you know, one of the family's crowning achievements to have, have uh, been responsible for building that. But they they always owned a lot of um, working class cottages in South Melbourne and in tough times they'd almost retreat back to South Melbourne and live off the rents or the commission for the rents for, for um, houses in South Melbourne. But then you know, at various times that expand beyond that, you know, in the 1880s, in, in the boom time, um, you know, they got involved in, in some property speculation. And you know, the story of how they got involved in the boom and then survived the crash, you know, it's a really interesting little microcosm of the boom and bust in South Melbourne and just the utter insanity of property prices in 1888 and then the suddenness of the crash I hadn't realised that I'd, I'd always thought that things just gradually got worse, you know, hit a peak in 1888 and then slowly went downhill till the bank crash in 1893. But no, in real estate, it wasn't like that. It was, they hit the top in July 18, well, May 1888. By July 1888, it was all over and, and property sales are stopped, almost dead. It was really... So it was a real crash. It was, it a, was a real crash. And in eight. They went, Buxton's went from 1889 was their best ever year up to that date and actually their best ever year in real terms ever probably. And they went from that to 1889, they hardly sold a house because wow. people with 
values falling. It's a bit like now. It's values falling. People didn't want to sell, so there were far fewer houses coming on the market. Mm. So it was it was just absolutely dramatic. And being able to see that through the records of one business was really interesting. I guess we get an idea of the history of Melbourne through specific suburbs as well because they were focused on specific suburbs. They were focused on South Melbourne and Albert Park and then in the 80s, St Kilda Road, sorry, mm. and, you know, Docklands. So we see Melbourne as a microcosm in a few different ways. I think that to go further with that, there are certain themes that stand out when you read the book and this longevity of the Buxton companies and their ability to ride those waves of Melbourne cycle and boom and bust, is it comes out very clearly in the book. Uh, what do you think's contributed to that longevity and do you see connections between particular periods perhaps? Look, it, it, it's a mixture of luck and good management. One interesting comparison is with the values because in the 1880s, WL Bailey rose from nothing to be Melbourne's leading real estate agent in the boom and then he just went horribly broke in the <laughs> crash, <laughs> absolutely penniless the story of how he came back from that is is remarkable, but he did go broke. Whereas the Buxons never were never as big as WL Value, but they they I think they realised that it, it's always the case that in every boom there will be people who will say this time it's different, there won't be a bust, but there always is a bust. <laughs> and um, the Buxons seem to have realised that where the values didn't, and I, I think they've always been aware that it's a cyclical business, and so. Uh, they've never been carried away in the booms to overextend themselves too much. They've got close a couple of times. Um, the classic one was that, that um, Michael Buxton and Max Beck signed a contract to buy 333 Collins Street on the day the stock market crashed in, 1880, in 1987 and they paid an enormous amount of money for that block of lands where the uh, old Commercial Bank of Australia building was, which was one of Melbourne's great boom time buildings built in the late 1880s, early 1890s, actually opened in 1893, just as all the banks were, were, cra- were crashing. So it uh, had a bit of a chequered history as a, as a building. But um, the, the story of 333 Collins Street and how um, Beckton got involved in it and then got out of it is, I think, one of the, the most fascinating parts of the book. I still don't fully understand how how Beckton survived that because when they bought and built the building, it was they they, they spent roughly five hundred to six hundred million buying the land and building the building. By the time they finished it was worth two hundred million. Oh my goodness. And that sum just doesn't look good. But somehow or another they managed to uh, switch the responsibility for the excess money to the Government Insurance Agency of South Australia and the South Australian Government. And one of the reasons the South Australian Government went broke in the early 1990s was because they lost so much money on 333 Collins Street in Melbourne. Wow. So there's an, there's a kind of a, I'm getting the idea, there's a flexibility to respond to the market and a really deep understanding of the market mm. and how these cycles can happen, but also a bit of luck yeah, in there as well. <laughs> there's always a bit of luck, but the, the understanding of the real estate market is, is it's, just, it's, it's in, their, in their bones, in their blood. <laughs> and so I, I know you draw connections between the 1880s, 90s um, boom and bust and the 80s and 90s boom mm. and bust. Do you see a synergy with what's happening today in the property market? Uh, not nearly so much. Um, while we did have a pretty insane housing bubble, it was driven by different things. It wasn't just pure speculation. I mean, there's the massive growth of population 
that Melbourne's been having, which wasn't nearly so much a factor, certainly in the 1980s. Um, and, and in the 1980s, the boom was in commercial property rather than in residential property. You know, I, I think to, the situation now is very different from either of those. I think the Australian economy is so much more integrated into the global economy now that what happens here is far more determined by what happens in you know, China or between China and America, whereas in the 1880s, and 1980s, it was far more just what happened in Melbourne. I mean, the, the 1890s crash in Melbourne was like nothing else anywhere in the world at that time. Yes. Yeah, it's far far worse in Melbourne than in Sydney or Adelaide. Yes. You know, and although I, there was recession, the Melbourne one was... Yeah, Melbourne one was... A, the worst a, in the yeah, world, really. An almighty depression. Yes, yes. Yeah. But looking at these past periods of boom and bust can inform us about present and future, mm. potentially, and even as much the differences as the similarities can help us yeah. learn about what might happen in the market in the future. Yeah, look, at, and I think, you know, the, the, the biggest lesson is every boom is followed by a bust. Yes. <laughs> the, bust, the boom and the bust will look different, but there will always be... There's you know, always going to be those mm, cycles. Yeah. I'm moving away just specifically from the Buxtons themselves at My Marvellous Melbourne, we're also fascinated by the process of doing history in a variety of ways. So can you tell us a little bit more about researching such a wide variety and depth of sources? Yeah, <laughs> big question. Um, <laughs> yeah. First of all, to the sources, I mean, we're lucky with the Buxtons, and I should acknowledge, Nicole, your help in doing the, the research for the book. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but, um, so th yeah, th there was a very wide range of sources. I, the, the bedrock of it in some ways was what's in the Melbourne University archives, which is the, the business records up till the 1960s. And they're not complete, but fortunately they're more complete for the early years than the later years. So they're very complete up to 1900 and then they become a little bit patchy. But uh, to have the the day-by-day -day figures of a business through the boom and bust of the 80s and, and 90s is is just wonderful. Um, far better records than I think for almost any other business that, that um, was in, in Melbourne at that time. So that's, that's a really good start. One thing that was enormously helpful was that Kathleen Fitzpatrick, who's one of the most famous members of uh, what was the history department here, but she was the granddaughter of one of the Buxtons and her autobiography gives a wonderful picture of the, the family from a domestic point of view from the early 1900s onwards. And, and that was a, an absolutely invaluable source. It, it would have been a very cold and impersonal look at the early years without that. Now, newspapers, of course, digitisation has just totally transformed newspaper research you know, from the old days of going through microfilm desperately hoping to spot <laughs> something <laughs> um, to now being able to search almost any newspaper in Australia. It's just totally transformed. In many ways, it means there's too much material to work with and getting it all under some sort of control is is the challenge. Rate books. Um, when I did my first local history, which is History of Warrnambool, many years ago I asked Western Bate, who was Victoria's greatest local historian, famous for his history of Brighton in particular, but also Ballarat and other places, I asked him for advice and he said, look at the rate books. Um, so I did that. The other aspect of the the research for this, of course, is that from about the mid-1950s, there are a lot of people available to talk to. Yes. And uh, so there's a lot of oral history in, in the recent years. You know, I talked to not only to the Buxons, but the architects and 
landscape gardeners and so on, you know, all sorts of people that they worked with cre- creating their projects, um, the town planners, um, government, you know, t- t- talked to Jeff Kennett and uh, Mark Birrell, who were key figures in the Liberal government in the 1990s when Docklands was getting underway, uh, talked to the architect of 333 Collins Street, which is the most fortuitous one because he's from Texas. Um, 333 Collins Street is, I, I think, the most elegant of Melbourne's modern buildings. And the architect they chose to do it was a 33-year-old from Texas who they'd come across <laughs> in their travels. And um, fortunately, I was in Texas for a conference to do with my new project on Vietnam veterans. And uh, he lives in Austin. And he very kindly came to visit me uh, in, in San Antonio and uh, we had a very pleasant lunch. So amazing, amazing guy. But I hadn't realised how young he was. I expected this old guy to stagger in to beat me and he was way younger <laughs> than I am. So that's the Buxton story, a bit of synergy, a bit yeah. of luck, you know, mm. picking the right people. Yeah. It's also a really richly illustrated book. So if anyone listening is um, interested in, you know, the visuals of what Peter's talking about, the book has so many images in it. And this is the beauty of you working with the Buxtons on the book, that there are images in there that will never be in the public domain because they're from their collection, Mm. hanging on the walls of the MAB building, Mm. et cetera. So that's quite fortuitous as well to have that there. Yeah, that's right. Had access to a lot of pictures that we wouldn't have if we'd just been searching in the public domain for them. Yeah. So um, you've worked over your career for a really broad variety of clients, including the Buxtons. What do you think some of the rewards and challenges of researching and writing commissioned histories are? Yeah, look, it, it's that's an interesting question. I, I got into doing this by accident. I'd start off with a fairly normal career academic history, but then family circumstances took me away from history for about 10 years and I was involved in running a family business in Warrnambool. And then quite out of the blue, I was asked to write a history of the Royal Children's Hospital. I did a few local histories while I was in Warrnambool, but not much. And uh, that that really was, it was, I, I found out later, it was a bit of a Jim Hacker moment. If you, for those of you who recall Yes Minister and the story of how Jim Hacker became Prime Minister, there were two far better candidates. <laughs> the committee couldn't decide between them and I was the compromise. Um, and, uh, and, you know, then one thing just led to another after that. So there's always the issue of independence. You know, I'm asked about to what extent did the people commissioning it um, you know, demand or insist on, on following a particular line. And I'd have to I've never had a problem with that. Some of them I've been asked to do it because I'm independent. The Collins Submarine one was classic case of that. The Navy wanted a, a book on how how the project was done and the lessons they can learn from it. And so they wanted someone who knew nothing about submarines because everyone who knew about them had written about them. So I came into that, you know, completely blank canvas. There have only ever been two things I've been asked not to put in a book. One of them was with the biography of Sir Ian Potter. Lady Potter didn't want me to put in the story of the Venice wedding, okay. um, <laughs> uh, which I didn't have a problem with because it really involved her and her family rather than Syrian Potter's family. It was not a, an important part of his story. He was getting very old. And the other thing, the Navy didn't want me to say how deep a Collins class submarine can dive, oh. even though it's 
on the public record, it's in Jane's fighting ships and all the sort of standard works that it's somewhere between 999 and 1,001 feet. Uh, but uh, the Navy didn't want me to put that in. They said it's top secret. Oh, it's out there now. I put in a lot of other things that I would have thought were top secret. Yes. But they didn't mind those. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yes, yes. So um, the other thing is that doing commissioned histories, just a variety of work that I've had, you know, you come across historians and you know, they've spent their entire career looking at the you know, textile industry in Milan from 1327 to 1386 <laughs> and they know nothing about anything else, whereas you know, I've, I've learned a little bit about an enormous variety of things. I mean, there, there aren't many areas of Australian history that I haven't touched on. Well, I'm going to leave you with one last question, Peter. Um, it's probably a bigger than Ben-Hur question. But um, I wanted to ask, what do you see um, as the biggest mark that the Buxtons made on the city of Melbourne, if you can think of one thing, and how do you see them having an impact into the future? Yeah, look, the biggest one, that's that's a really tricky one because yes. for each era there are, there are particular things Um you know, the, the, the mark they left on South Melbourne is still there and will always be there. Um, the, the impact they had on St Kilda Road in the 1980s. St Kilda Road had been one of Melbourne's grand boulevards and then in the 1960s almost all the fine buildings were knocked down and then when the Buxtons came along, they were, it was it was an absolute rubbish street and, and to their credit, they, what they put there was a lot better than what was there and that they knocked down the 60s buildings and replaced them with rather more elegant 80s buildings. 333 Collins Street, I still think, is a, a wonderful building. The work they did at Docklands, it's it's perhaps a bit too early to yes. do a final judgment on that. Then at the moment, a lot of their work is um, out of suburban developments. Now, most out of suburban developments are just hell on earth. <laughs> but I'd have to say that the Buxons won. They do have parks. They do have open space. Um, they don't have the houses crowded quite as close as some of them. And, you know, they, they, they have community infrastructure built in at the mm. same time as, uh, you know, they're not just putting houses in a, in a barren landscape and leaving the poor souls there to fend for themselves. Normally they try and get, um, you know, a big manufacturing or, or a business complex so that there are local jobs. Classic one is um, at Merrifields. They've got big Dulux factory there, which is um, they're going remarkably well. Well, that's great. Um, I think that this is definitely, if you're interested in the history of Melbourne, the history of Melbourne business, the history of real estate, this is definitely a book to have a look at. Um, thanks so much for your time today, Peter. It's really interesting to explore that a bit more in depth and a bit further with you. The Buxton's 150 Years of Developing Melbourne, published by Black Ink Books, is available through the publisher's website and at all good bookstores. Links and details can be found on the transcript of this episode. Thanks and goodbye from Peter and myself. The Royal Historical Society of Victoria has an intriguing new exhibition in their Abeckett Street headquarters, featuring the life and times of lecturer and historian Isaac Selby. English-born Selby migrated to New Zealand with his family in 1868, and 
as his entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography notes, he began to accumulate a vast store of information about history, religion, philosophy, science, literature and the arts. He first moved to Melbourne in 1882, married back in Auckland in 1885, and then returned to Australia where he put his universal knowledge into practice by making a crust from giving public lectures to pretty well anyone who cared to listen about a diverse range of subjects from Unitarianism to teetotalism, the history of warfare or anti-Catholicism, and in particular, his favourite subject, the history and heritage of Old Melbourne Town. Selby opposed the resumption of the Old Melbourne Cemetery for the development of the Queen Victoria Market and set up the Old Pioneers Memorial Fund to support popular awareness of history as well as the erection of a statue to John Batman in the Flagstaff Gardens. An important part of the collection on display are letters from William Cooper, Honorary Secretary of the Australian Aborigines League, reminding Selby in the late 1930s, care of the Historical Society Melbourne, that the coming of the white man was something of a disaster for his forebears, that the fact of his people being debarred from full rights was censurable, and thanking Selby also for some of his sympathetic gestures towards a fair deal for the dark race. The Royal Historical Society exhibition was launched by historian Geoffrey Blaney, who recalled crossing paths with Selby, who died in 1956. I think I first uh, came to meetings of the Society in 1954, and it was a very small society. Uh, Isaac Selby was a distinguished member. And the first time I went to a meeting, and they were held about 8pm, in the railways building in the Railways Institute, which was in the Flinders Street railway station complex. And in the front row, amongst the 30 people present, sat Isaac Selby. I didn't know who he was, but uh, the address took place and uh, the chairman thanked the speaker and asked for questions or comments. And Isaac Selby stood up. He wore a very strange black hat. I called it a cockade hat in my memory, but it wasn't, but it had a Napoleonic look about it. He had a black cloak, uh, rather a white face, and he stood up and instead of facing the chairman, he faced the audience and delivered quite a speech, partly linked to the subject that was being discussed, but also to whatever interest he had in his mind that afternoon. He was a wonderful speaker an old-time orator. His sentences were rounded, long, melodious, his voice. He really was a first-class speaker. He didn't seem to have any personal contact with anybody in the audience. He didn't come and speak to anybody afterwards. He just sat on his own. Uh, I heard him speak on several occasions, and indeed uh, he sold me a ticket once for an event, and I'm sure it was his last public appearance, in the Assembly Hall in Collins Street, which was then one of the great halls of Melbourne. And uh, Isaac Selby was putting on his, uh, his views of early Melbourne. And he sat at the front door at the little desk with a money tin and told people their tickets or collected the money. He wrote down their names and the sum of money that he'd collected from them. We see from the exhibition that the money largely went to him as a, as a non-rarian, but fair enough, he had no other means of support. 
the program said that the evening would be preceded by patriotic songs sung by Myrtle Liddy and her choir of children. I can't remember the choir or the patriotic songs, but they're on the program. And then Isaac spoke, wonderful speech about early Melbourne, the importance of preserving the pioneers' graves and other things. It really was a great occasion. <coughs> Isaac Selby, and just briefly, he was born in Greenwich. He came with his parents to New Zealand as a migrant, I think arriving there in 1868. He describes, and he wrote a very long book, I think it's called The Pioneers' History of Memorial History of Early Melbourne, about 250,000 words, very well written, very eccentric in the memories he puts into it, but often very accurate in its history. He, uh, he describes the speakers he heard when he was in Dunedin and how he became a rationalist or a free thinker. He uh, came over to Melbourne and uh, began, the pub began to be a public speaker and a debater. He went back to New Zealand, didn't he, and he married in Auckland, a girl whom he later divorced. Um, he then was converted, they were both converted uh, from rationalism or free thought to Christianity. And his link eventually was with the Church of Christ. Uh, much later he became a pastor of the Church of Christ, preaching in that church in Ligon Street. I'm not sure whether it's still open as a church, but it's almost next to the Trades Hall. And the Church of Christ has largely been forgotten, but a very important church in Australia. The main church in Melbourne was opposite the public library. I think it's still standing there. And uh, Darrell Dawson, Darryl Dawson, the High Court judge, his father preached in that church. Dame Leone Kramer, believe it or not, went to the Sunday school there. Uh, the number of people of prominence who were connected to the Church of Christ was very large. And Isaac Selby was one of the great orators. Most sensational, of course, was Selby's divorce case. Selby and his wife had travelled to San Francisco in the 1890s, where they came under the influence of the Unitarian Church. Jessie, the wife, in fact, refused to come back to Australia. And when she petitioned for divorce, Selby went back to America for the court case. The Argus newspaper reported the sensational events in 1904. Judge Hebbard was hearing a suit when Selby entered the court. For a few moments, he stood against the door near the attorney's table, listening to the proceedings. Then, without a word of warning, he whipped a revolver out of his pocket and fired at the judge. The bullet passed over the head of the clerk of the court, missed the right temple of Judge Hebbard by an inch, and buried itself in the upholstery of the judicial canopy. Don't let that man get away, cried the judge, and before most of people in court fully realised what had occurred, the judge scrambled over the bench, across the reporter's table, and rushed over the floor of the court to where Selby stood, threatening a group of lawyers with his revolver. Judge Hebbard struck Selby heavily on the chin with one hand and seized him by the throat with the other. As they struggled, Selby raised his revolver again to a level with the judge's breast and pulled the trigger. Happily, the cartridges had become displaced, and although he snapped the weapon several times, they did not explode. So the upshot of all that was that Selby was sentenced to seven years in jail, but released from a hospital for the insane in 1910 on the condition that he returned to Australia. But uh, he then became uh, absorbed in the old Melbourne Cemetery. There's been a great 
movement in recent uh, weeks to prevent the Victoria Market taking over the car park which stands where part of the cemetery stood. From some of the pictures here, it was a wonderful sight about the time of the First World War, wasn't it? Overgrown grass but trees growing among the graves, what you would call a really picturesque park. It was Isaac's desire to turn this into a great memorial of Australian history, preserve the cemetery, and also as the war went on, it entered his head that this should also be a great war memorial. And so he began to campaign for the mixture of war memorial and, and pioneers, pioneers cemetery. He enlisted the help of Lieutenant General Sir John Monash when he returned from the war, and he became a very strong supporter. Of course, as an orator, John Monash, great man as he was, could not compete with Isaac Selby with his black hat and his flowing gown. <laughs> he, uh, he wrote his, in 1924 his Pioneers Memorial History of Melbourne. It is, and there are people here have read it, it's about 250,000 words. It's a huge book, but it's full of all kinds of interesting bits of information. You can be very well informed on Australian history and read page after page and find snippets of interest that are quite new to you. Anyhow, he, uh, he, he continued with his various activities. Um, in the Second World War, he set up a branch of the Red Cross, which he called the Russian branch of the Red Cross, uh, and collected donations for unknown purposes in Melbourne. <laughs> he then uh, became a very prominent speaker at all kinds of gatherings in Melbourne. He was a remarkable man, a bohemian, another eccentric, but an exponent of the kind of oratory we no longer hear, but was so powerful as a form of the media for much of the earlier Australian history. It's a fascinating exhibition, curated by Alison Cameron. Selby was in fact a member of the Royal Historical Society of Victoria, and the exhibition draws extensively on its collection of his scrapbooks, bundles of lecture notes, as well as lantern slides he used during those lectures. Isaac Selby, lecturer, historian, assassin. Check it out. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.